Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us to kick off another week and to provide some highlights from the latest UBS house view. Glad to welcome back the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office, Jason Dreho. Jason, good morning. Thank you for joining our listeners, our clients on this Monday morning. Looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Dan. Happy Monday. Good to be here for another week. Absolutely. So, Jason, you're joining us to provide some highlights from the latest house view from the UBS Chief Investment Office. Maybe we can dig into the monthly letter from Chief Investment Officer Mark Hafley a bit. Within that letter, CIO does ask a number of questions, beginning with, can equity and bond markets keep rising? So what's the answer from your vantage point? Oh, well, the very short answer is, is yes. We think there's positive returns for both equities and bonds. Uh, I would note that the S&P 500 closed uh, on Friday, last Friday, at an all-time high. So it does beg the question, uh, you know, what's the outlook from here? Oftentimes when you get these all-time highs, investors might think, well, you've peaked and it has to, to roll over. But we know historically that the one-year, two-year, and three-year returns uh, for the S&P 500 after it's reached an all-time high are pretty much exactly on average with, you know, other sort of time periods when the market hasn't hit an all-time high, meaning you know, between like 10 and 12% over one year, 22 to 24% two years, and you know, mid 30s and three years. Uh, so the fact that we've hit an all-time high isn't any, doesn't sort of tell us anything in particular about the S&P 100. Then we actually look at the fundamentals. You know, what we see this year is, uh, and what we expect is the S&P 100 earnings to grow about 8%, sort of an aggregate for the overall index. Uh, such a rate of earnings growth historically is usually driven equity markets higher, uh, and going back roughly the last 60 years, the S&P has been up about 10% on average when the earnings growth has been around 8%. Uh, the other thing is also the um, when you know a lot of focus on the Fed hiking or, or cutting rates, how does that impact the the markets? And typically, the S&P tends to rise you know before the Fed first rate cut. It's that the market anticipates that and rises on average about 8%. But then it goes on to average a return of about 16% in 12 months following the first cut. So even though the market's anticipatory, it still ends up rallying a lot more after the first Fed cut. And keep in mind that we are forecasting the first cut for the May timeframe. Now, it is possible that a lot of this good news is already priced in. You know, the forward multiple is hovering around 1920. It's relatively expensive. But then when we put that in context of an unemployment rate that's at 3.7% and inflation that's a little over three and likely to trend lower, that combination of growth plus inflation, sort of known as the misery index, is very low. Uh, it is just uh, you know a little bit over you know six six and a half percent. In that environment, typically earnings the multiples are in the range of what we're talking about you know nineteen twenty given the macro fundamentals. So equities are expensive, but that tends not to be a good predictor of subsequent returns. Earnings are better, and their earnings outlook looks positive. And certainly, what we've seen thus far very preliminary. For Q4 earnings is that the guidance for 24 has not changed. It's still holding up quite well. So, you know, solid return for equities. A lot of obviously going to be differentiation below the surface. If we then pivot to bonds, uh, we think bond yields ultimately will have a little bit further to fall as the Fed cuts rates. Historically, you've seen the 10-year yield fall when the Fed is cutting. So right now, the 10-year is around 4.1%. Our forecast for year-end is 3.5%. So it, it could take a while to sort of drift lower. You know, in the near term, it might sort of be range bound between like four, four and a quarter. But at a minimum, then in case you're getting like a four plus percent kind of total return or carry from uh, 
from you know, treasuries, and as rates fall, you get even sort of more kind of bang for your buck. So ultimately, we think kind of you know mid to upper single digit type of returns for for high quality fixed income in general. So overall story, we still see upside for both equities and bonds uh, at these levels, um, even though they're both at least for equities look you know, relatively rich by history and the fundamental suggest there's more returns from here. So Jason, just running with the rate environment a bit further, the second question was how should investors navigate portfolios through the coming turn in the rate cycle? What are your thoughts there? Well, just picking up on my comments about the returns across asset classes, uh, we see positive returns for equity, for bonds, for high quality fixed income. Uh, so people have been maybe tempted to sit in cash and earn five and a half percent in cash. Um, there is ret- equivalent kind of return possibilities with more upside for, for other asset classes. So, so just sort of getting back in balance and doing so sooner rather than later makes sense. You know, when the markets turn, as we saw last year, they can turn very quickly and, and, and violently. And if you're not positioned for those upside opportunities, uh, by the time you make the adjustments, you know, a lot of those moves could already be over. So one can get, get back into the balance. Uh, it also pays to be somewhat proactive to switching from cash or cash kind of equivalent securities into bonds before the, uh, the first rate cut. Um, typically, cash will outperform bonds during their first stages of a hiking cycle. You think of what happened in 2022 because you know, as interest rates are, are rising, you know, bond yields go up, bond prices go down, so bond returns can be you know, low or, or outright negative, whereas cash, at least you're going to be kind of holding steady and be positive. Uh, the flip side, though, is that cash tends to underperform in the later stages of the hiking cycle and during rate, cut, rate cutting cycles because the markets anticipate lower yields, you know, bond yields decline, and therefore you get a pretty sizable total return for bond yields overall, whereas cash is being reinvested at lower and lower rates. So as a result, we think that returns for kind of high-quality, medium-duration bonds, like think of, you know, roughly like a 7- to 10-year Treasury bond, could be high single digits where, for this year, whereas for cash it's going to be probably sub 5% if in, assuming the Fed does cut those rates as we expect starting in May. So that's one way to kind of manage this rate hiking cycle or rate cutting cycle is to move some of the money out of cash into other asset classes and, and fixed income is certainly the first protocol in that regard. A related thing, and this is a little bit more sophisticated for some investors if they can do it, is to play and hedge for the yield curve to steepen out. It's been over 18 months where the yield curve has been inverted, meaning the 10-year yield is below the two-year yield. Uh, it's been from where it was around minus 100 basis points. It's now around minus 20 basis points. Typically, when you come uh, from into a rate-cutting cycle, the curve steepens. It's the front of the curve. Those rates decline, and the back end starts to kind of rise on anticipation of you know kind of a better economic outlook going forward. Um, so there's different ways to play that kind of outright, but just understanding, again, that, that sort of you know, duration impact is a way to kind of manage interest rate exposure specifically in fixed income in portfolios. So, Jason, of course, have to acknowledge how 2024 is a big election year, not only here in the U.S., though around the world as well, coupled with a lot of geopolitical factors that are top of mind for many at the moment. How should investors, this is the third question, by the way, how should investors think about the geopolitical and political risks on the horizon? Well, let's start with the geopolitical. In front and center with that is what's going on in the Middle East, what the Israel... Uh, you know, Hamas war, but also now, you know, this year we've seen these attacks in, on ships in the, uh, in the Red Sea, whereas in the U.S. and British forces have been, uh, you know, kind of having a counteroffensive there. We've seen other escalation of tensions between Iran and some of its neighbors. You know, the biggest thing that investors would have to worry about is, you know, two things. One, 
will it impact the price of oil? Uh, and the second, could this cause a supply side, supply chain issues because shipping channels are being impacted and will that lead to, to higher inflation? And in both regards, we don't think it's going to material uh, impact the outlook for the price of oil. I mean, we, we expect oil prices to go higher, but still in our base case, you know, oil prices are getting to, you know, $80. So upside from here, but not treating up to like $120 as they did when Russia invaded Ukraine. Regarding the Red Sea and disruptions to shipping, uh, the overall impact on goods is going to be relatively modest. Uh, the percent of a total cost that consumers in the U.S. will pay for goods as a result of shipping is, you can, on average, going to be less than 5%. It's a very small percent of the overall cost of the goods that you're buying. Um, if the cost goes up you know, marginally, uh, even you know, 20 30%, the impact for the price of a good, assuming it's kind of passed on one for one, in that case could be, you know, well less than kind of, you know, in 1%. You know, we're, we're talking about 20, 30 basis points. So directionally positive, but the actual the impact, you know, given what we think it could alter supply chain costs, is pretty, you know, modest overall. So that geopolitical story in the Middle East, you know, it could escalate into be a much wider, big military conflict in the Middle East, but from if things kind of roughly stay where they are, the overall inflation impact is, is relatively modest. In fact, it might seem counterintuitive, but the Baltic Dry Good Index, which is a measure of shipping costs, has actually fallen you know, thus far in this year. So again, it, it hasn't really impacted the overall cost, and it seems unlikely to have a major impact on the, on the overall costs. If we then turn to more of the domestic matters of the, the U.S. election, um, there tends to be a lot of association in people's minds about election outcomes, their own personal views on what that means for investing in equities or other risk asset classes. Uh, and it's often the case that people then, as a result of the outcome, it's not what they want in terms of an outcome. They perceive that to be negative for the economy, for the markets. Uh, and what historically we can see is that whether it's a Democrat or Republican wins, equity markets tend to go higher, uh, and there's not a strong correlation in one way or another. So, you know, number one advice is to put aside uh, and leave at the door your political views when it's making investment decisions, sort of invest with your, your head, not your heart in this case. Uh, it's also just as, as a matter, given the early stages of, of where we are, um, there, there's still many months, we have like almost you know 10 full months to go before the election on November 5th. There's still a lot of uncertainty how the macro environment will play out, the geopolitical environment will play out, uh, the clarity on how the, not only the, the presidential election will, will turn out, but also how Congress will play out. Uh, because polling will show right now that uh, former President Trump is is leading in most polls nationally, but predictive markets put a 70% chance on the Democrats keeping the House. And, and if that were to happen, if you have a sort of split governance in, in D.C., then the possibility of significant fiscal packages, whether it's spending increases or cuts or tax increases or cuts, that becomes much less. So the overall market impact becomes you know smaller at this point in time. So a lot of focus on it, but in terms of the actual market and investable implications right now, it's still relatively you know, muted. Um, I know this doesn't mean that these aren't sources of, of tail risks and things that investors should watch, but I think in the near term, meaning the next few months, far more important for the markets will be what, how do the economic data play out and what does it mean for the Fed in terms of how much they cut and how soon. And as the year goes on, certainly the U.S. political situation, as we get a little more clarity of exactly how things could play out, that will start to become a bigger impact, but I think for the near term, it's more about potentially hedging different scenarios in extreme cases rather than positioning your portfolio as as particular base case outcomes. So, Jason, on the topic of positioning, with all of this in mind, the big question, of course, is how should investors position their portfolios? What kind of guidance at the moment can you offer there? Well, our overall asset class 
preferences are still to prefer bonds over equities. While we see kind of comparable returns for U.S. high-quality bonds and equities this year, uh, you know, meaning in sort of mid-upper single-digit type of returns given current levels, uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, you're going to get those returns from bonds with lower volatility and probably higher conviction because rates just have to stay the same and you're already getting 4%, whereas from kind of current levels to get the 4% in equities, obviously you need to see the markets kind of continue to kind of you know, move higher and, and probably even then perhaps surpass our year-end target of about 5000 for the S&P 500. So on a risk-adjusted basis, fixed income looks a little bit more attractive. A consistent message, though, whether it's in equities or fixed income, is we prefer kind of quality assets, so high-quality fixed income. That includes treasuries, high-quality munis, high-quality corporate bonds like investment grade, but also in securitized products, whether it's agency mortgage-backed securities, which are basically kind of government, or effectively government-guaranteed. Uh, you know, and also we upgraded um, CMBS, high-quality CMBS. These are commercial real estate, you know, kind of backed bonds. But we're talking about double A, triple A kind of quality bonds, so very high quality. So that's what we like there. And in equity, sort of a similar story, kind of quality stocks. These are companies that have high returns on capital, relatively low leverage. They have done quite well over the past four weeks. Uh, and the tech sector, which is one of our preferred sectors, you know, is represented well in the quality sector. So it's an area that's not defensive, but it allows you to kind of get through a period of time where the uncertainty of exactly how the macro will play out, how much the Fed will cut this year, which could be a boost to cyclical stocks or, or not, if it materializes that gets, you know, aren't, aren't as forthcoming as, as the market expects, that's a good way to, you know, to be positioned overall. But that said, we still perceive good opportunities within U.S. small cap stocks. They had very strong performance in November and for much of December, have pulled back a little bit this year, certainly have lagged the overall markets as there's been this rotation favoring quality stocks, favoring AI kind of stories, you know, but it's, I'd point out earlier that the S&P 500 has an all-time high, whereas the Russell 2000, the small cap index that is most widely followed, is still in a bear market. That's a very unusual circumstance. We expect some convergence there uh, with small caps kind of catching up, and that's one of the reasons why we still like you know, small versus large. Uh, it could be a period of time where it doesn't perform, and then also periods of time, as we saw last fall, where small really outperforms by 5 to 10 percentage points in a matter of four weeks. So we think it's good to kind of keep the position on almost as a – the hedge on the upside scenario and consistent with the new message and focus of this month, which is anticipate a kind of a Goldilocks scenario, that Goldilocks scenario where growth is at or above trend, inflation falls steadily and the Fed's able to cut rates correctly, small cap should do quite well in that particular scenario. So those are a few of the messages and a few of the key ideas that we have in terms of overall asset class preferences and recommended portfolio positioning. Well, Jason, thank you for dropping by top of the morning to share with our listeners, our clients, these considerations when it comes to positioning, as well as CIO's current thinking on the market, as well as the geopolitical environment as we're making our way into the new year. So look forward to picking back up with our conversation in the week ahead, though. Wish you a, a great week, Jason. Thank you again for joining us today. You're welcome, and have a great week. Thank you, Jason. Again, today we have been speaking with Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. I will point our listeners, our clients to the latest UBS House View, uh, the Investment Strategy Guide and Monthly Letter. Key questions for 2024 is available for you now up on UBS.com slash CIO, though for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of these resources directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.